Hi there, welcome to Victim to Victor, the podcast dedicated to empowering abuse survivors and inspiring healing, hope and positive change. I'm Anu Verma, a published author, and in every episode, I'll sit down with a guest and embark on an insightful conversation about trauma, as well as practical strategies to start the healing process. So let's get started. I hope you enjoy the show. With me today, I have Brad Watts. Brad Watts is a licensed professional counsellor and the author of the Amazon best-selling book, Sibling Sexual Abuse, a guide to confronting America's silent epidemic. Brad specialises in working with individuals and families where sibling sexual abuse has occurred, and he conducts training with communities and groups across the United States on how to recognise and respond to incidents of sibling sexual abuse. He's helped hundreds of people on their journey to healing following sexual abuse, and in today's episode, we will be covering what sibling sexual abuse actually is and how widespread the problem is, and also how how different this is than normal sexual curiosity and why it's considered a silent epidemic and much more. Listen on to learn more. And here is Mr. Brad Watts all the way from America. How are you, Brad? I'm great. How are you doing? I'm good. Thank you. So, it's about quarter to nine here now in the evening, but hey, I'm raring to go. I've had my cup of tea. <laughs> <laughs> but no, thank you so much for coming to see me um, today on this show. Uh, and I know that, you know, we've got some real important subjects to talk about. And you've wrote a best-selling book called Sibling Sexual Abuse, A Guide to Confronting America's Silent Epidemic. It'd be great to find out more about the motives behind writing this book. And if you could just please tell us about yourself as well. Who is Brad? Yeah, yeah. Well, first, just I really appreciate you having me on and, and the opportunity to talk about this. And, and so, yeah, as far as hitting the motives for the book, uh, I was working, obviously, in America at a residential treatment facility when I finished grad, graduate school. And so I started... Uh, working, you know, they asked me to start working with the adolescent sex offender population. So I remember thinking, as a lot of people do, you know, I was kind of weirded out by that. I was like, well, I don't know if I can work with that population. Yeah. Uh, so I had moved up uh, uh, to Virginia, you know, where I was at, and, um, you know, thought I'd give it a shot. You know, I was like, okay. You know, I remember my professor at grad school had worked with that population and it spoke very highly of it. And then I, at the time, yeah, I was like, wow, that, that, you know, I was thinking, oh, there's no way I can't work with them. But, it, you know, I told them I'd give it a shot. And what I found is I just really grew to, to love it uh, and love that work because just understanding all the dynamics that happened with, with kids and how much different adolescent offenders are than adult offenders. Oh, you know, people okay. that we typically think of like, Larry Nasser, yeah. you know, you go back a few years, particularly in America, Jerry Sandusky was a big case um, over, over there in Penn State coach. And so just really seeing that they responded much, much better to treatment. But what, yeah. And so what I noticed was there were these patterns that would happen. And I was like, holy cow, all so many of these cases uh, tend to happen where, where 
adolescents are offending on you know, people within their home. You know, we call it siblings, but it's really child-on-child sexual abuse. So it could be step-siblings, could be, you know, mom has a, has a boyfriend who has kids in the home, could be cousins. So, so we use that term kind of, kind of loosely and all-encompassing. But, you know, just notice these patterns. And so I, I created a really kind of rough, uh, what I call family therapy treatment manual. And so I took that across a couple states in the United States to present at these conferences. Okay. And so I didn't think anybody would show up. You know, I remember I'm meeting with my one of my professors, Boring, and I was like, I expect like five people to be here. And, you know, the room would be full. And so that surprised me. And then we would talk afterwards and these people would share their experiences. And I was just like, wow, this, this is really cutting across all kinds of demographics. It's much more common than what I thought. And so I came back to trying to put myself in the place of parents. You know, can I imagine getting news, uh, you know, that, that I have one child who has sexually abused the other one? Because, you know, I'd, I'd always kind of grown up, you, you understand, oh, you, you know, the way we look at adult offenders and yeah. you know, you, parents and families would, would focus all their anger, you know, and all the, the complex emotions that, that those parents go through with that towards that individual. But the difficulty of I adore my, my kid and I adore my other kid, you know, as only a parent can love someone. And then you're just really torn apart from that. Yeah. Not to mention what is this, you know, the survivors are going through in that. So, it, you know, when went online and was looking, I was like, there is nothing out there for, for parents as kind of a guide to, to walk them through. So originally, the whole the book was intended for parents to, to walk people through. But it's really kind of a, a big snapshot of the process of, of what, what someone could expect. Uh, but not the other audience for the book is, is really for all of us. And, and it's a call to action. Um, you know, I call it the silent epidemic. I really mistitled the book, you know, because I said America's silent epidemic. And as people that are involved, this is the world silent epidemic, whether it's in the UK, whether it's Australia, Canada, lots of people I've talked to all over the world. Um, and this is, this is something that is for humanity, for us, for our children, for our families. Uh, for survivors, you know, we need to talk about and do all that we can to support them because we need to hear their stories in order to really be able to tackle this problem. Yeah, absolutely. And um, how, how long have you been a counsellor now? Uh, seven years. Oh, wow. Okay. Seven and years. during that time, so would you say a lot of your cases have been children? Yeah. Yeah, really? most definitely. And, and yeah, a lot of That's cases sad. of sibling sexual abuse, um, and, and yeah, definitely. Oh, bless. Oh, goodness. I know because we talk about um, the COVID lockdown and the impact that that's had on, um, you know, abuse in general, really, domestic abuse, yeah. sexual abuse. Have you noticed an impact on children coming to see you during this time? Yeah, I mean, COVID's been hard on everybody, right? You know, and, and, and definitely, you know, during the, the time that it's been, it's, it's, it's led to an increase in. in like you said, you know, that kind of abuse going on. Okay. So how dif- how is it different to normal sexual curiosity? Oh, that's a great question. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and so that's that's one of the big problems is identifying, you know, what's the difference. And, and kind of in, in my work, my opinion, 
um, and kind of the research that we see is trying to draw draw the line. What what's the difference? You know, how do we know? Well, one of the big elements of that is what is the motivation? Right. So with sexual curiosity, if someone's exploring and, and and that's normal, that's healthy, you know, playing doctor, you know, those kinds of things, it's going to happen, you know, once, maybe twice. Yeah. It's typically going to happen between around same age peers. And the motivation is curiosity. It isn't sexual gratification. Mm-hmm. So, for example, I use an example in the book. Uh, if you've got a 12 year old exploring the body of a six year old, well, that's clearly abuse. Yeah. You know, one of the things is, is the age difference. Um, so they're going to be close in age, but a bigger factor, even an age difference, because we see a lot of it happen between, uh, you know, people that are really close in age. It's coercion. It's manipulation. It's threats. It's force. It's wow. shame. And they really exploit that relationship. Yeah. Because think about the role of a big brother when we think about a healthy sibling relationship. What's well, my protector? Mm. Right. You know, and, and so they're exploiting that relationship for, for sexual abuse gratification. And then it also makes it harder for these survivors to come and, and, and disclose because of the effects that it could take on the family. It could mean more abuse. What will happen? Well, no one will believe me. You know, so, so some of those themes that we see. And grooming, I guess, is another term to apply to this as well. Um, yeah. And again, yeah. grooming yeah comes up a lot and it's only recently I had um a, another guest on and we were actually discussing Michael Jackson yeah yeah I was in kind of disbelief still about what happened I think a lot of us you know who were his fans we just wanted to pretend that it never really happened but then yeah. I started I started to uh, watch more YouTube videos and it's it yeah it's true right it's it's so true he did it yeah. Grooming is it's huge that, that we see in it. And, and it's so unfortunate. And we see it through just so many different ways. It can be things like sexual talk. It can be uh, showing pornography. It can be, you know, for example, you, you don't, you know, a brother saying, you don't want me to get in trouble. You're going to be the reason you, you break up the family. It's, hey, here's, I'll give you some of your favorite candy. It's, and it can be you know, a variety of things, as, as you know. It is, yeah. And so why would you say it's considered a silent epidemic? Because we don't talk about it. I mean, think about it in, in, our, in our worldwide public discourse. Most things are on the table nowadays. Yeah. You know, that, that we can talk about and have conversations. But sibling sexual abuse, what I saw is, is we just don't talk about it. And if we would talk about it more and open up a dialogue, you know, we would see yeah, a great deal of improvement. And, you know, survivors would feel safe. They feel empowered. They feel valued. And they don't feel that way because we're not talking about it. For example, you know, think about, okay, if I get a cancer diagnosis, I don't know, what do I do? It was just so dumbfounding and, and you're in grief and, and all this and shock. So I could go on Facebook or social media to my friends and say, hey, where can I go? Who's a good doctor to go see? And, and people would give me feedback. Well, you, no one's going to go on Facebook or social media or you know, pick your platform and say, hey, um, you know, I just found out my, my son just sexually abused my daughter. Or, you know, yeah. so, so what do I do? You know, there isn't that. So that, that sense of shame and silence around it 
allows a lot of it to keep going because parents don't and caregivers don't do anything about it or and they're left to just suffer in silence you know even if they do try and do things about it so it's just it's such a heavy burden to carry for for everyone involved particularly the survivors it is but then i just think about the kids as well because um, well, I guess it's difficult for them to communicate this because a lot of them don't even realize that it's bad for starters. And secondly, how, you know, they probably haven't even got the vocabulary to even express what's been going on to them because, yeah. you know, they can't say, oh, I've been sexually abused. How is it that they can communicate? And um, what's the kind of youngest uh, child that you've had come to you? Well, what, what we can look at just in general, and I'll speak to the research on that, is so the average age of offenders, according on the, on the research that you see in the studies, is around 15. Uh, the average age of survivors is around when this has happened six to seven. So your point is absolutely correct. It's like, well, well, how do you how do you say that and think about a six or seven year old brain yeah. and the way the way you're seeing it? And you know, according to one study that I was recently reading over the last week, is the average time that that people were abused in, in that study was four and a half years. Think about that. Wow. You know, two to three acts of, of sexual abuse, let's say a month mm-hmm. over a four year period, you know, the trauma that, that goes oh, on. Nice. And, and so, yeah, it, it's hard for these kids to, to come disclose. And, and we see, you know, most don't disclose at all. And when they do, a lot of times that they're older and unfortunately, a lot of times it's a really bad reaction. They're not believed. Mm-hmm. It's, it's minimized. You're making it up. Or we see things like, you know, victim shaming that we see in other forms of abuse. Yeah. You know, so it's just a, a really, really difficult epidemic like what we talk about. It is. It is. And we'll go on to um, kind of the education that, you know, we can obviously have as parents and education that we can give to our children as well. But just want to know, first of all, you know, how widespread the problem actually is right now. Yeah, we really don't know, you know, because of the lack of research. We don't have the the long studies, the longitudinal studies Hmm. to be able to document all of that. And so so what we do know about it is, you know, several studies that have found that it's up to five times more common than any other form of childhood sexual abuse. So in in the past, we've thought, you know, father or stepfather sexual abuse on the child was the the most common. Well, sibling sexual abuse is, according to some studies, as much as five times more common than that. So we do know um, that that it's extremely common. We don't, unfortunately, have have better numbers to be able to to realize that uh, because a a lot of cases of sibling sexual abuse that we do know of, they don't, they're, they're kind of the worst ones that they reach the level you know, right. within law enforcement. But so many don't, so many survivors don't tell anybody. Um, and, and so we really need, you know, a more, you know, better research done. Mm-hmm. And we have a lot of male survivors that, that won't be a part of studies, you know, for different things. Mm-hmm. And so, so, you know, we have a lot fewer of them coming forward to participate. Okay, because you know that in India, Modi has um, set a law saying that as long as the child is fully clothed, it's not classed as sexual abuse. Hmm. What's your thoughts on that? Oh no, 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 it, that doesn't matter, you know. And and so, you know, it's things like that laws that, that are not helpful as far as again problems with defining it. 
Yeah. And really knowing and understanding we have problems even in the clinical world, um, you know, here in the States and certainly, you know, in other countries as well, as far as so many clinicians have not even considered it abuse in the past. And, and yeah. so think about that. You have people that are therapists, that are clinicians, psychologists, not taking it seriously enough, much less as a society, um, not, not giving it the, the, the serious discussion and treatment the way, the way it should be treated, which is yeah. one of the most absolutely difficult traumatic experiences that anyone can go through. It is, yeah. And so what, what is it? What, what would it take for somebody to actually go into the register? So what's the kind of limit that they're allowed in America right now? Oh, as far as to be registered as like a sex offender? Yeah. So, well, it, it all depends, particularly with adolescents. We typically don't see that. Um, it can happen in really severe cases. And it is kind of a state by state, uh, depending on the state law, with, with how that goes. Yeah. But, you know, the, the thing with... We, we shy away from that because of the adolescent brain because it's not fully developed until they're, they're mid-20s. Mm-hmm. And what we see, we see really positive responses to treatment from, from youth. So, for example, if a youth will, that, that sexually offends, get into a specialized treatment program mm-hmm. that is designed to tailor to, to those who have sexually acted out, there's a 95 to 98% uh, in essence, success rate that they won't go back and be be arrested and, and offend again. Um, so it's really, really high. Um, that's one of the reasons why I really enjoyed the work so much is seeing families and, and individuals be able to change because it's incumbent upon us to want to rehabilitate our youth. Because think about it, they go on and continue on that road and become, you know, reach pedophile kind of state years years later i mean think about all the damage that it does to the community the world so the more we can rehabilitate better fantastic yeah and uh, so what signs can the parents and adults look for you know if they are um, currently dealing with um a child who you know maybe showing signs of you know yeah abuse that's a great question uh changes in behavior Okay. A big, a big one. Particularly like within the home, let's say it's somebody within the home, are they acting differently when they're around, you know, certain siblings? Yeah. Do you see avoidance? You know, do you see, well, there's just a, a ton of different signs, but, you know, is there like cutting, self-harm, depression, you know, crying, you know, a lot of crying, uh, nightmares, uh, difficulty eating, um, I mean, you name it, lots of different of those behavioral kinds of changes, uh, you know, just really to clue in and look out for. And, and parents, you know, should, you know, really just ask some tough questions and just just be direct kids, ask open wow. questions, be willing to listen. You know, one of the best things I feel like that they can do is just really fostering that kind of relationship with their kids where they, they the kids feel safe that they can tell them anything. Um, okay. Just yeah. take a deep breath, you know, and ask what, what's going on. And, and, you know, a lot of times that, that obviously they won't want to tell, but just to be open in that safe space and then, you know, believe. Mm, yeah. We talk about safe space a lot when it comes to trauma therapy. So important. Mm-hmm. And I guess for the child, it can just be asking simple questions like, has anybody touched your pee pee? Yeah. Mm. Simple as that, right? Okay. That's that's quite um 
think that's important for all parents to um, maybe start addressing that because I think there's a lot more awareness now and um, you know parents are a lot more alert (laughs) with their kids so yeah and I think you know what we're doing as well like with your book it's just benefiting the world tremendously so yeah keep it up so um where can parents turn to for help well for one you know getting therapists involved you know particularly trauma specific therapists so just so you're not you know keeping it to yourself you know we want to open the doors with that and and so i tell people you know get, get a professional involved you know there are people like me you know that handle this um you know, ATSA, the Association for Treatment of Sexual Abusers is one, you know, very specialized group um, too. But just, just get, in, get involved, you know, get asked questions, you know, don't be afraid. You know, obviously, I have people email me all the time. You have questions, you know, I'm always, always happy to answer those, whatever they, those may be, and, and try and help people in whatever way that I can. Um, but, but, you know, getting mental health professionals involved is really key. Because what happens is when you get a disclosure, of sibling sexual abuse, mm. the whole family needs to be in treatment you know, oh, because it's really? such a wow. situation. And you know, getting help for the survivor as parents, as caregivers, mm. it's important that that you know they're getting involved in, in treatment because it's so traumatic too. It is. Well, what would be the immediate response? So let's just say um, a child has just disclosed what may have happened to them. Mm-hmm. What, what would the parent do then? Well, I would one talk to them you know, and allow them to talk as much as they're able to talk, get as much information as possible, and then go act on it. So for example, they could talk to the other sibling, you know, they deny it, whatever the case may be. Uh, You know, they can call a mental health professional, you know, and get them involved, but but take action. You know, like in the States, sometimes it's calling, you know, social services, you know, gets involved as well, um, and that they can help guide that. And but really just to find out information, you know, okay. mm. you know, what beats look like, you know, what, how long was it going on, those kinds of things. Okay, that's good to know. So, you know, when it comes to adult offenders, we've done a lot of um, work on this ourselves. Um, like the main motive for adult offenders is power and control, right, when it comes yep. to abuse and yeah. rape. But what is it with adolescents? That's what I don't understand. What is their motive? Yeah, I mean, it becomes a lot of different things. Again, power and control, you know, yeah. are right wow. there near the top. That's so, you know, young, and so right? <laughs> Exactly. And so what we see is, in a lot of cases, physical abuse, their own sexual abuse, um, any kind of child maltreatment, all increase the risk for them to act out in, in these kinds of ways. Um, as I write in the book, pornography is a huge, huge deal. Wow. As far as influencing them. And so think about it. So according to, to some research, you know, that we see um, the average age that uh, uh, someone will seek, seek out porn for the first time is around 10 years old. So think about the brain development of a child. Now they're looking at, at, at porn and particularly, you know, the way porn is now, very rough, very violent. Um, and so they're taking that and thinking it starts with curiosity they're thinking this is how sex and relationships are. And then a lot of times they're thinking, well, who can I do this with? And there's nobody I can think of. So you know what? 
I can have my little brother, little sister, I can make them do it. No one will disclose that. I can keep that a secret. So they're not to the point where they're going to go try and grab somebody and pull them in the bathroom at school, but they're going to do that in that controlled environment where maybe they know, hey, I know mom goes downstairs and watches TV at seven o'clock every day. And then I can go in here and, and, you know, act out what I want. So that's why addressing, you know, kids, sexual media and pornography is so key because they don't have the life experiences that we did, you know, as adults. Um, And so that's what they're thinking. And and we see a lot of it starts with curiosity because as parents, we're not talking about sex and educating them as we should. And so, well, who's then doing it? Pornography kids yeah. at school, you know, other people. And that's where we really run into some problems. So I guess it's curiosity. That's what it boils down to. Curious kids. Oh, honestly, you just think, well, why can't they just be curious about things like science and, you know, uh, the world? And <laughs> Yeah. And, and it's important to remember, look, every kid, as we know, that, that looks at porn, that doesn't mean he's going to sexually offend, but it does put them in a higher risk category when they have other, other of these risk factors going on as well. For sure. Absolutely. So do you feel that there is hope for the future? Oh, I do. I do. And, and like I said, you know, what we see, we see kids that get into treatment, they have high success rates. When you talk about offenders being able to rehabilitate, okay. you know, obviously the priority is our survivors. Mm-mm. What we need to do and with the book is, to, to focus our attention on talking about it, talking about how we need to believe and, and invite, create situations where survivors can share their experiences. Yeah. Um, you know, but we've got to break down this taboo where we don't talk about it, where people don't know what to do. They don't know how to recognize it or they're confused thinking, well, that's just sexual play. That's just sexual curiosity when it's not. It's abuse. And it's this, one of the, in my opinion, probably the most severe kind of abuse. When you talk about within the family and those dynamics, when a family is supposed to protect, you know, that's your safe spot. And then think about these kids losing it. And then every time they sit down to dinner, every time they're there, they're seeing their abuser, that nothing has been done or that the family has taken his side. And they said, you know what? We don't believe you. And and so we need to talk about it. It's incumbent upon all of us to act and and to talk about it and break down these stigmas and these walls and let survivors know that they will be believed um, and that we will support them. Yeah. And so how can families heal? Well, every situation is different. And so one of the biggest ways is just simply, you know, one, like I talked about, putting the survivor first, you know, supporting them, putting your energy there, sending the offender, you know, getting him the kind of treatment that he needs, and then working forward. Every situation is different. You know, there's some families that they won't be able to heal, quite frankly, but a lot of them can and do. Um, but it, it can take a long time. Um, but it's, you know, confessing where we went wrong, you know, believing. The more, the more parents can just believe the initial disclosure, the better results are. Where we get into problems, more severe kinds of problems, is when kids aren't believed you know, when they disclose, but fostering that kind of environment um, where parents are, you know, clued in, you know, on top of things 
and doing all that they can. But as we know, it, I mean, sibling sexual abuse happens in low-functioning families. It happens in high-functioning families. Yeah. So it, it's just, you know, it happens, but, but we need to do everything we can to root it out. And when it does happen, yeah, families can heal. But it, it's, it's, you know, moving forward, getting treatment, um, offering that support, you know, yeah. sharing responsibility, um, taking responsibility for what's been done and, and, and create, creating an environment of safety um, where that would never happen again. Yeah. Well, I guess when it comes to believing your child as well, I, I understand that, you know, a lot of parents might think that the child might be craving attention and so they might be making it up. What are the other kind of factors which might go behind a parent not believing their child? Well, I mean, think about it. Uh, you think about the consequences of it. Well, what does this mean for my family? Yeah. Well, does this mean Johnny is going away? It's like, well, what does that mean? Well, what, what, what's the rest of the family going to think? What are my friends going to think? You know, okay. it's, it's, you know, it's about me instead of, and naturally so, but it needs to be about the kids and about the survivor and also about the offender and getting them treatment, getting them the help that they need. Yeah, exactly. But there's a lot of, a lot of factors in that, that, that parents, they're in such shock in disbelief when they get a disclosure, they don't want to believe it. And you see a lot of cases where, where, you know, they'll walk out of the room or whether they'll they'll just say, we'll never do this again. Well, they need help. They need professional help. Everybody does in the family when that happens. They do. Yeah. And so do you see offenders as well as um, the victim? I spent several years seeing offenders and now primarily I, I treat, you know, survivors. Uh, um, but yeah, I did a lot of work with, with the vendors. Oh, wow. Well, I was going to ask like what, what kind of work you're currently doing, um, you know, with your, um, the victims or is it safe to call them victims? I only, I only say that because of my show and also, um, the kind of, you know, skills that you apply to help them to heal. I think that'd be quite useful for my listeners, um, to know. Yeah. You know, it, it's, it's just really important. Um, you know, there's a variety of things that, that we do, you know, as far as, um, but it was trauma, just like, like everybody, yeah. you know, the therapists do, you know, did different techniques, but really it's important, you know, as they come in and, and work through you know, the trauma that they've been. And then there's a variety of things that we do. Um, you know, I find trauma narratives are really important, you know, that yeah. we do at different points, but it's just really where, where people are at. I know EMDRs are really you know, great technique to use, you know, with trauma as well. And a lot of research and success behind it. But, you know, um, it's kind of based on, on the individual and, and where they're at. Because, like I said, we do see uh, common patterns with sibling sexual abuse, but every situation has its individual factors. How about when it comes to offenders? So is a lot of that training based upon trying to um, understand why they feel the way that they do towards their sibling? Yeah. Yeah. And probably even more so than that is the importance of them taking responsibility and accountability. Yeah. Not trying to blame it anywhere else. You know, like, like I said, there are other factors that create risk factors, but nothing makes them turn around and sexually abuse that that is their choice that is their responsibility like i said there's thousands upon thousands hundreds of thousands of of, of people that have been sexually abused but they don't turn around and abuse somebody else so it's really understanding those factors you know gearing treatment individually again towards each situation to, to really 
you know, have them develop their level of empathy to really understand as much as they can. Certainly they can't do that fully, but as much as they can to look at the abuse and what's been done um, from, from their, their sibling's shoes and perspectives. And that's hard work. And, and so what happens we see a lot of times is that they just didn't think about how they were affecting not only their, their sibling, but their whole family. Um, a lot of intensive work, like I said, looking at, at you know, pornography, how that's used, you know, safety planning, developing, you know, like I said, uh, areas of, of skills where they've been at deficits in the past and really, you know, working in, in those, those regards. Oh, thank you. No, that's brilliant. Wow. So um, where can my listeners find you? Yeah, my, uh, my website is bradwattslpc.com. They can, they can email me at bradwattslpc at gmail.com. And I'm on Twitter at bradwatts, uh, at bradwattslpc. So I uh, love hearing from people and, and love hearing people's perspectives and, and uh, just trying to help in whatever way I can. Oh, perfect. That's great. And I'll be adding all the links uh, once you send them over, as well as a link to your book as well. Is that available on Amazon? It is. It's on Amazon. That's right. Oh, fantastic. That's great. So that would be uh, fantastic for my listeners to be able to contact you if they do have any uh, questions, especially if it's a parent who you know, may uh, be looking out for their child or, mm-hmm. you know, if their child's already undergone some abuse and um, they might be struggling with how to yep. to deal with that. So please do reach out, my listeners, and, um, you know, I hope you do did enjoy this. Um, well, not enjoy, but I hope you found it useful. It's not really a topic of discussion to enjoy. Right. <laughs> I take that back. But um, it has been very valuable, um, just understanding about sibling sexual abuse and just the fact that it is an epidemic out there and we really need to um, understand more about it and to just create that space for, you know, our kids and any other survivor to be able to speak about it. Communication is key, you know, and I think it's been evident during our discussion today that, you know, we really need to talk more. And this is why I have this platform to obviously raise this awareness and to provide a platform for survivors to also share their their journeys of inspiration. So thank you so much, Brad. You've been amazing today. Thank you. I I really appreciate you taking the time and and giving the platform for for sibling sexual abuse. So thank you. Thank you so much. Brilliant. So I will be back again in my next episode, listeners. Please do take care in the meantime. Stay safe and look out for your children and um, stay blessed. Take care. Bye. Thanks for tuning in to today's episode of Victim to Victor. Subscribe so you don't miss out on new episodes and be sure to follow the podcast on socials to keep updated on what's next and share Victim to Victor with family and friends to help grow the community and spread the positive healing energy. 